feel like with some passages of Scripture, uh, you read it and you say, like, thanks be to God. Others, you read a passage like that and you say, Lord, have mercy. Uh, because there are, there are some really, really hard passages in the Bible. There are some hard words uh, that Jesus has to say to us. And this is one of those passages that you look at it and you say, wow, like, what in the world is Jesus doing here? These are hard words to hear. And we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about why that is today. Um, if you've been here, you know we've been walking through a series on, on spiritual formation. We've been talking about what does it mean to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. See, we believe as Christians that Jesus isn't just calling us to a new level of morality that Jesus isn't just calling us to become religious people. We believe that Jesus is calling us to an entire new way of being human in the world. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the most fully human being who ever lived. What I mean by that is that Jesus, the Bible says, is the image of God. He is the perfect reflection of God. And we as human beings have been created to image and reflect God. And so Jesus shows us not only what God is like, but he shows us what it means to be truly and fully human. And for a lot of us, we hear that and we're like, all right, let's go. Like, sign me up for that. That sounds fantastic. But here's the problem. The problem is that for every single one of us, we have lived our entire lives learning a different way to be human. We've developed patterns of, of living and loving that pull us away from the true life that Jesus offers us. So Jesus calls us, walk with me on the way, join me on the road. But for every single one of us, there are these like detours and there are these potholes and there are these roadblocks that keep us from practicing the way of Jesus. And we will never truly experience the life that he has created us for in him until we learn to deal with those things. So the problem is that for many of us, we treat Christianity, we treat Jesus as an add-on to our lives. We treat him as something that we kind of just layer over the top, right? So uh, think about your car. If your car is broken down, it doesn't do you any good to get a new paint job. It is still broken down. But that is the way a lot of us treat Jesus. That's the way a lot of us treat Christianity. If I get a new layer of morality... If I get a new layer of religion, if I get a new layer of some spiritual disciplines, if I get a new layer of doctrine, then I'll be okay. But I know, and I'm sure you know, a lot of people who do all that stuff. A lot of people who read their Bibles, a lot of people who pray, a lot of people who go to church, a lot of people who fast, a lot of people who do all the religious stuff, but they're nothing like Jesus. Their life and their character is nothing like the life and the character of Jesus. Because the truth is, Jesus doesn't just call you to a better life. He is not a helpful add-on to your life. Jesus promises to give you a new life. Jesus promises to be your life. He promises to remake you. He promises to recreate you into the fully human being that God intended you to be. Right? That's what we just celebrated in baptism. When Zach goes under the waters, dying with Christ symbolically and symbolically raised again with Christ to a new life, to practice the way of Jesus, to live the life that is truly life in Christ. And so if that's true, if Jesus has given us new life, if he has called us into a new kingdom, if we have died and we have risen with him, then what that means is that he's going to deconstruct some things in our lives. Jesus says these hard things because he knows if he is going to remake us, 
he is going to need to unmake us. He is going to need to tear some things down. He is going to need to pull up some roots so that he can build something better in its place. He's warning us. Here are the potholes. Here are the roadblocks. Here are the things that are going to keep you from walking with me, from practicing the way. And so I I think what Jesus is calling us to through this text today is a bit of self-reflection. To ask the question, what's keeping me from practicing the way of Jesus? What is keeping me from practicing the way of Jesus? What are the barriers? What are the roadblocks to walking the road with him? What is keeping me from living like a citizen of the kingdom of God? To follow Jesus means to enter the kingdom of God. He talks about it all over the Gospels. It means to cross the border. It means that Jesus becomes our king. It means you are a citizen of a new kingdom. And what that means is that the allegiances in your life have changed. It means that Jesus is supreme. It means that all rival kingdoms, that all rival allegiances must come down. And so if we're really going to do this, if we're really going to practice the way of Jesus together, then we have got to have it firmly settled in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives that Jesus is greater. He is greater than any of these other things that pull us away from him. Now, now here's what I mean. Here's what I mean when I say that Jesus is greater. I mean that he is more important, that he is more weighty than anything else in our lives, that he is the center of gravity in our lives, that he is the supreme authority in our lives, that nothing else ultimately defines us, that Jesus and his kingdom is the thing that defines us, that he is Lord over everything. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper famously said this. He said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, who is king, who is Lord over all, does not cry, mine. So when I say Jesus is greater, I mean Jesus is Lord. But I don't just mean that Jesus is Lord. I mean that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's what makes the kingdom of Jesus good news. Jesus is better than anything else that we could possibly live for. He is better than any of those other things that call for our allegiance. All of these other things offer us happiness, but they never can finally and fully deliver. They can never fully satisfy. Our marriages, even the best marriages, our families, our careers, our bank accounts, our sex lives, All these things can offer us happiness, and and they can give us maybe a degree of happiness, but if you make them ultimate, if that's where you get real meaning, if they're the center of gravity in your life, then they will be crushed under the weight of your impossible expectations, because Jesus is the only one who can bear that weight. He is the only one who can make you fully and finally happy. He's the one we were made for. He's the one worth losing everything for. So that's what I want to do today. I want to look at the ways that Jesus is greater. I want to look at the ways that he keeps us from all of these other things that keep us from following him. So we're going to get into to Luke 9. Luke 9, just to set it up, what's happening here? There, there are three people, if you, if you read in the text, there are three people who came to Jesus. There are three people in the story who meet Jesus on the road, and they're all kind of interested in him. They're all checking him out. They're, they're all interested in following him. They're like us in this room. Because chances are, if you're sitting here listening to me talk about this today, you're at least willing to entertain the claims of Jesus. That's where these guys were. They're hanging around Jesus. They're listening to Jesus' teaching. They're kind of like Jesus fans. 
The question is not, will you be a fan of Jesus? The question is, will you be a follower of Jesus? Will we practice the way of Jesus? Because whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, whether you're just kind of checking this thing out, we all have roadblocks. We all have barriers that get between us and practicing the way of Jesus. And so I want to look at those roadblocks that Jesus confronts today. And I want to take us an honest look at ourselves. And then also I want us to see how Jesus is greater, how he offers us something better than all of those things. First roadblock we see here in this passage uh, is kind of a strange one. It's the roadblock of idealism. The roadblock of idealism. Look at verse 57 as they start off this passage. As they were going along the road, and so here's Jesus is literally walking out along the road. People are literally following him along the road. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now listen, if I am trying to build an organization, if I'm trying to build a, a movement, that's exactly the kind of commitment I'm looking for. I'll follow you wherever you go. <laughs> Look at Jesus, verse 58. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus looks at him and he says, you have no idea what you're saying. Your mouth is writing checks that can't be cashed. You, you just don't get it. You don't understand what following me is going to entail. I find this so fascinating. Jesus doesn't try to sign him up there on the spot. Jesus doesn't try to give them, you know, the pitch and like loop them in and then sell them a condo and try to get them uh, signed up for this thing. He wants him to know what it is that he's signing up for. He wants to be honest with him. He wants him to understand this is what it's going to mean to follow me. And he wants all of us in this room to understand that. See, what you need to know is where Jesus is walking in this passage. If you read the rest of Luke chapter 9, you see Jesus is not just out for a stroll. Jesus is not just out, you know, checking out his fitness app, seeing if he's got his steps in for the day. Jesus is walking somewhere. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. And why is he walking to Jerusalem in this story? He is walking to Jerusalem because that's where the cross is. Because he's going to be crucified. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. It says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And it says over and over again in Luke 9, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's like he turns and he says, that way is Jerusalem, that way is the cross, and nothing's going to stop me from going there. He says, the road that I walk is the road of rejection. And it's going to lead me to the ultimate rejection. It's going to lead me to the cross. And in the midst of that, then this guy kind of runs up and says, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, I don't think those words mean what you think they mean. The road that I walk is a road of homelessness and hardship and rejection. Now, we don't know. We don't, this guy may have said, okay, I'm still all in. Luke doesn't fill that part of the story in, but he wants them to know what he's signing up for, and he wants us to know it because idealism is one of those roadblocks to following him. This is what I mean by idealism. I mean this unrealistic mindset that assumes that things are always going to be good, that assumes if I just follow Jesus, everything's going to be okay, that assumes that life is always going to measure up to its expectations, and I'm always going to measure up to my expectations. When I, when I think of idealism, uh, I think of basically the entire story of my athletic career, uh, especially my high school football career. So um, I remember when I'm in high, uh, playing football in high school, 
Um, playing, understand, is a loose term. Uh, I did more watching than playing. Um, but I remember I, I, this one time, I think it was my sophomore year, I finally get in the game. So it's like my first varsity game. I get in the game. I'm on punt coverage. And so I get down in my stance, and the ball is snapped, and the ball, I hear the ball kicked, and I just start trucking down the field. Like, I am going down the field, and there is nothing but daylight between me and this ball carrier. So I'm like, I'm hearing the sports center theme playing in my mind. I'm imagining my highlight reel. Like, I'm going to make the play of the game. Well, when I regained consciousness, uh, I found myself lying face down in the mud with like the big pieces of dirt and grass in my helmet because this dude had just come out of nowhere and absolutely blindsided me. He had actually spun me around on a complete 360, and I am face down in the mud. Now, I think for a lot of us, we kind of feel that way in following Jesus sometimes, right? I mean, especially like if you're just starting out in your, in your walk with Jesus, it sounds like, man, things are going well. I'm running well. I'm walking this road with Jesus. Everything seems to be going great until it's not. And for many of us, we don't know what to do with that. Everything seems so shiny and new. Everything seems so good. And over time, we become cynical. We become disillusioned. We become disappointed. Maybe we just become bored with this whole thing. For some of us, we're crushed because we're following Jesus and then life doesn't turn out the way that we hoped it would. Your spouse leads you. Your kid gets cancer. You never meet that someone that you were wanting to marry. Some of us are crushed when we find out we can't live up to our own ideals. I have this conversation with people in our church all the time. Used to love following you. Used to love getting up at 5 a.m. to read your Bible and pray. And now the only reason you get up at 5 a.m. is because your kid has peed the bed. You're trying to pray, and every time you, you, you try to pray, you just fall asleep. Because you're tired and you're worn out. Some of you here are crushed because you're realizing you are not as committed to Jesus as you once thought that you were. I think about my own life. So I, am, I am naturally an idealist. Uh, for the Enneagram nerds out there, I'm a one on the Enneagram. I see everything in terms of right and wrong, everything in terms of good and evil. Everything is a cosmic issue to me. It's also why I can be so cynical, because the world doesn't live up to those ideals. Because if I'm honest, I don't even come close to living up to my own ideals. And when that happens, I'm crushed. I first started following Jesus, I was, I was really idealistic. I was very idealistic about the kind of person that I would become, and I thought I was doing well. I thought I was walking down the road following Jesus, and then life happened. My expectations about life were crushed. My expectations, frankly, about myself were crushed, and I started responding in some really unhealthy, some really sinful ways. I found myself going to places I never should have been. I found myself doing things I never could have imagined. And yet, here's what I found in the midst of that. I found that Jesus was with me the whole way. Because Jesus is greater than my idealism. Jesus was with me in places I never should have been. Jesus was with me when I was doing the things I never should have done. When I was running away from him, when I thought I could avoid him, when I thought I could get rid of him, he was there every step of the way. He never gave up on me. He never left me. He never abandoned me. I love the way J.I. Packer says it. He says, there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. 
so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. None of it surprised him. None of it surprised him. I was shocked by how sinful I was, but he wasn't shocked. He wasn't surprised. Some of you are there right now. Some of you, that idealism, the shininess of this whole thing has worn off. You're disillusioned with Christianity. You're disillusioned with the world. You're disillusioned with yourself. But listen, Jesus is not disillusioned with you. He is not surprised by where you are, and he has not given up on you. I can look back, and I can see how he allowed some of these things to happen so that my idealism could be torn down, so that he could give me something better, so that he could give me himself teaching me to stop trusting in myself and my own pathetic pursuit of perfection, to trust him and his righteousness. Jesus is better. He is greater than idealism. But the flip side of this is also true. He's greater than idealism and he's greater than pragmatism. Here's what I mean by pragmatism. I mean the people and and the tendency that a lot of us have to try to get Jesus to play by our rules to try to do things on our terms. The people who are, who are always looking for an out. See, the per- first person who approaches Jesus is an idealist, but the second and third people here are pragmatists. They're hedging their bets. They're, they're, they're trying to bargain with Jesus. They're, trying to, they're trying, to, trying to get Jesus to play and do things according to their terms. Look, look at verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Okay, so what's happening here? Why does this guy want to go bury his father? Well, most likely what's happening here is that his father is still alive. His father is still living, and he says, Jesus, I I really want to follow you. I really want to walk with you on the way, but but let me wait till after my dad dies. The reason we know that is because uh, according to the burial customs of that day, this man would not have been out in public if his father had just died. Uh, he, he, would have, he would have been in a dedicated time of mourning. And so what he's saying is saying, I really do want to follow you, Jesus, but I need to wait until my dad dies. Now, we don't know everything about why he needed to wait. Might have been he's, he's afraid of what his father's going to think of him. Might have been he's afraid I'm going to be written out of the will. But whatever it is, Jesus knows what's going on under the surface. <clears throat> he knows that when it really comes down to it, This man's father's expectations are more important to him than the kingdom of God. doesn't value Jesus more than anything else. Same thing with the last guy. Look at verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Now that sounds like a really reasonable request, doesn't it? In fact, I would say to you, it's actually a biblical request. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 19, there's a story about Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is this great prophet, and he calls Elisha to follow him, and Elisha says, okay, like, can, I, can I go say goodbye to my parents first? And Elijah says, cool, that's fine. And this guy says, makes the same exact request of Jesus, and Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I am upping the ante here. I am calling you to a greater commitment to me because I am greater than Elijah. I am greater than all the prophets. I am greater than your religion. I am greater than your traditions. I am the king. I am bringing the kingdom, and I am worth leaving everything for. Let me just say to you today, especially if you're, if you're exploring Christianity, if you're asking questions about Jesus today, this is, this is just a moment of intellectual honesty. You can't just have Jesus as a great moral teacher. 
You can't just have him as a religious leader. That is intellectually dishonest. Because Jesus says the kind of things that no mere human being should say. He demands the kind of allegiance that no mere human being should demand. If he is not who he claimed to be, if he is not God in the flesh, if he is not the king who's bringing his kingdom, then frankly, he's the most evil psychopath in the history of the world. But if he is who he said that he is, then he is worth losing everything for. Jesus looks at these guys and he realizes these are delay tactics. They're looking for an escape clause. They don't want to commit. They make plans like a lot of us in this room. I'll get back to you later. Let's do lunch sometimes. I'll text you, Jesus. I'll get back to you later. And then what? Radio silence. Jesus says, don't delay. Salvation is here. The kingdom is here. Stop hedging your bets. Stop waiting for something better to come along. There is nothing better. There can't be any rivals for your allegiance. To follow me means that you stop putting qualifications on me. Listen, if you continue to put qualifications on Jesus, if you say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but, but you got to leave my sexuality alone, but you got to leave my career alone, but you got to leave my money alone, but you got to leave my politics alone, but you got to leave my family al alone. Whatever the qualification is, whatever the but is, whatever the non-negotiable it is, whatever the thing is that you tell Jesus he can't touch, that's really your God. That's really your Savior. That's the thing that's ultimate to you. That's the thing you're trusting in. Because as long as we put qualifications on Jesus, as long as we have veto power over Jesus, we're, not, we're still the king. He's not the king. And some of us are missing out on Jesus because we want him to play by our rules. The truth is Jesus can't be toned down or censored, or kept in his place to meet our expectations. He is too great for that. He's too good for that. He is too wonderful for that. He, frankly, he loves us too much for that. He's the one thing that will truly satisfy us, and he wants to give us himself. He's greater than our pragmatism. That's also why he's greater than our security. Third roadblock, Jesus is greater than security. Foxes have holes, verse 58, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's this phrase that means that Jesus is the King of Heaven. The King of Heaven gave up his comfort. He gave up his security. He gave up his home left heaven to come to earth and die as a sacrifice for sins. And if we follow him, there will be a sense in which our lives look that way. Sometimes we'll be ostracized and rejected like he was. Walking the road of sacrifice like he did because the way of Jesus is the way to the cross. And for some of us, this is why we don't want to practice the way of Jesus. Some of us are afraid to follow him because honestly, we've got a good thing going right now and we don't want to rock the boat. We don't follow him because we don't really trust him. And so let me ask you to be honest with yourself. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Because we are all trusting in something. So what is it for you? What is the thing that you say, as long as I've got that, I'll be okay? Is it your career? What happens when you lose your job? Is it your spouse? What happens when they walk out on you? 
Is it your physical health or your intellectual abilities? What happens when you get cancer or dementia or frankly, when you just get old? See, those things, those career, spouse, health, all those kind of things, they're not bad. But if that's where you find your security, if that's the bedrock of your life, your life's going to crumble. Jesus is the only rock that is stable and sturdy enough to be the foundation for your life. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to give up your attempts to manage the universe. And you've got to trust me. One of the hardest places to trust him is the fourth roadblock, is the area of social acceptance, the area of social expectations. Jesus is greater than social acceptance. The Son of Man, he says, has no place to lay his head. Jesus wasn't just physically homeless, he was socially homeless. You read the rest of the Gospels, everybody eventually turned on Jesus. The conservatives hated him, the progressives hated him, the religious leaders hated him, the civil authorities hated him. And that's why he pushes the issue in verse 59. Look what he says. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus says, family expectations, family acceptance. This is the the defining social expectation in his day. He said, as important as that is, I am more important. I take precedence. Some of you here are are afraid to follow Jesus because it goes against the grain of your family expectations. Maybe your family is just kind of like, hey, yeah, a little religion is okay, but like, let's not get too crazy in following Jesus. Still living for the expectations of our family, and we need to decide what's more important, the acceptance and the expectations of family or following Jesus. This is a literal choice that many of our brothers and sisters around the world need to make. I I can tell you about friends that I know, friends from West Africa, friends from the Middle East, friends who literally had to go on the run for their lives because when they became followers of Jesus, their fathers put bounties on their heads. And they had to choose what is more important, the expectations of my society, the expectations of my family, or the call to follow Jesus. Some of us are the opposite. Some of us aren't living to please the expectations of our family. We're living to rebel against the expectations of our family. We think, I'm just trying to be my own person, but do you realize you're just doing what society tells you to do? You've just traded one set of expectations for another. You've just traded in the acceptance of your parents for the acceptance of your peers or your professors or the prevailing wisdom of society. And we're still living for the acceptance. You're trying so hard to be your own person. And then the irony is that makes you just like everybody else. Still living for social acceptance. Now listen, there is no virtue in being weird for the sake of being weird. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, this will at times put you out of step with the rest of the people around you. You will find that there will be times that you are going against the grain of the people around you, but you will also find that it's worth it because you will find that you are so loved and accepted by God that you no longer need the acceptance of other people. He's greater than social acceptance. Closely related to that, Jesus is greater than identity. He is greater than identity. He is greater than the things that define us. Jesus says, I'm greater than your closest family relationships. 
I'm more important than your family. Now, that is a hard thing for many of us to hear today, but in Jesus' day, that would have been unthinkable. See, in our culture, for many of us, yeah, family is important, but in Jesus' day, in his culture, family was everything. Family defined your identity. Think about the way we introduce ourselves. Think about the way uh, these guys introduce themselves during membership vows today. How do we introduce ourselves? I meet someone, hey, I'm Josh. Hey, Josh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, interesting. An awkward silence. Then they don't know what to do with the conversation after that, right? That's how we introduce ourselves. What do we do? Or et cetera, et cetera. In that culture, when you introduced yourselves, hi, I'm Josh. I'm the son of John. I'm the grandson of Bob. My ancestry, my, my family of origin defined my identity. It defined everything about me. Jesus says you need to leave that behind. Your old identity, your old way of defining yourself, leave it behind because I am giving you a new identity. I am calling you into a new family. That is what defines you now. Matthew chapter 12, another really hard saying of Jesus. Matthew 12, Jesus is teaching, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my brothers and my sister. Now, you think that might have made for some interesting Thanksgiving dinner conversations at Mary's house? Like, hey, mom, can you pass the gravy? Like, I don't know, Jesus, who is your mother? Like, that would have been awkward. But Jesus says here, my family is defined by those who do the will of my father. And he is inviting us into this new family that he's building. Now, listen, that does not mean that you don't care about your family anymore. That does not give you permission to be a jerk to your parents. But it does mean that they don't define you. That your family of origin doesn't define you. It contributes to who you are, but it does not define you. And so let me ask you, what is it that defines you? What is it that gives you a sense of identity? For some of us in this room, it is our family of origin. But for, for some of us, it's other things. For some of us, it's, it's our marriage or our kids. For some of us, it's our sexuality. For some of us, it's our career or our bank account or a zip code. If I'm honest with myself, there is this tendency to define myself by, by, by ministry, by being a pastor. And it's not that any of those things aren't true, but they are not what is most true about you. They are not what is most true about me. If you are a follower of Jesus, what is most true about you is that you're a child of a father who loves you and that you are a brother or a sister of Jesus. That leads us to the final roadblock. Jesus is greater than identity and Jesus is greater than your past. Jesus is greater than your past. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Some of us are ruled by our past. We are ruled by this sense of, of guilt or shame, or we are ruled by patterns of sin that we have developed over time. We are ruled by these things that we used to live for, and we're constantly looking back over our shoulder, constantly thinking about longing to go back to those things. 
But listen, when you become a follower of Jesus, that doesn't magically erase your past. That is still part of us, and it still affects us. But our past doesn't define us. Your past failures, your past successes, the things that you used to live for, none of it defines you anymore. Your past is part of your story, and you need to own your past, but your past does not own you. And my past does not own me because Jesus owns me. Because I've been bought with a price. Because I've been bought with the blood of Jesus. And the truth is, that is something that we need to remember every day of our lives. It's not like you do this once and then it's over. We quote this all the time around here. Martin Luther famously said this, his first thesis in 1517, he writes this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Repentance means turning. The entire life of the believer is turning away from the past, turning away from the things we used to live for, turning away from the things that used to define our identity, turning away from the things that we used to put our hope in, and turning toward Jesus. Because every single day, the siren songs of the past are calling out to us. They're calling us back to slavery. They're calling us back to our sin and our guilt and our shame and those false gods that used to rule us. But every day Jesus calls out. He calls out, follow me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now how in the world can that happen? How can I find rest in the present and hope for my future when my past is so filled with sin and guilt and shame? How can I continue following Jesus when I keep messing up, when I stumble, when I fall, when I fail him over and over and over again? If you read the rest of the Gospels, you see that even Jesus' closest friends, even Jesus' most committed followers turned away from him when the chips were down at the cross. They failed to follow him perfectly. Listen, that is why it is so vital that you remember what's going on in this story. Where is Jesus walking in this story? He is walking to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the cross. See, none of us do this perfectly. None of us practice the way of Jesus perfectly. In and of ourselves, none of us are fit for the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus died. He's the one who put his hand to the plow and didn't look back. He's the one who is fit for the kingdom of God and by his death and resurrection makes us fit for the kingdom of God. He's the one who gave up his comfort so that we could receive the comfort of his presence. He's the one who gave up his security, who laid down his life so that we could be secure in his love. He's the one who gave up social acceptance. He is the one who was mocked and spit on and condemned and tortured and murdered by his own people so that we could be accepted by God. He's the one who gave up his closest family relationship. He's the one who gave up his relationship with his father. And as he hung on the cross, bearing the sins of the world for the first time in all of eternity, the father turned his face away from him and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by his father so that we could become sons and daughters of God. And now, now, because of that, he sets us free to walk with him on the way. 
I am no longer a slave to my, my desires for comfort because the comfort of his presence is better. I no longer need to live for my own security because I am perfectly secure in him. I no longer need to live for social acceptance because I am fully accepted in him. I no longer need to be controlled by my past because 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem, Jesus dealt with my past. His body was broken for me. His blood was spilled for me. So as we, as we prepare to go to communion, I want you to remember that fact. Hope in that fact. Take a moment just to be honest with yourself and ask yourself the question, what is keeping me from following Jesus? You can be honest with God, right? God is not surprised by it. The struggle, the failure, the thing that pulls you away from Jesus, the thing that gets you to live for it instead of living for him, that's why Jesus died. He died so that you could be forgiven, and not just so that you could be forgiven, but so that you could be free, so that you could find the freedom and the joy and the life that's only found in following him. So take a moment. Take inventory of your life. Take a moment to be honest with God. Don't just stay there. Come then and be reminded of his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy and his love. Be reminded that he has not given up on you. The body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. The way that we celebrate that here, we have stations at the front. We'll have stations in the gallery in the back. Simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and take it and return to our seats. And maybe you're here and you're like these guys on the road. Maybe you're just checking out Jesus. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And we would encourage you just to remain in your seat while others take the bread and the cup. And just take a moment to be honest with yourself. Don't just do some perfunctory religious thing. Take a moment to actually be honest with yourself. If you're willing, maybe even step out and try being honest with God. Maybe even step out and just say, God, this thing's keeping me from following you. I don't know if I can trust you in this. And just take a moment to be honest with, with him if you feel comfortable trying that. Maybe if you even, even if you don't feel comfortable trying it, maybe try it. If you have questions about that, if you want to explore that, I would love to speak with you now. I'd love to speak with you uh, after the service. And so let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper.